Today's scripture reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. This is our last message in our series on Colossians. So just a, a quick preview of what's coming next. Uh, next Sunday, we'll be looking at the epistle of Jude. Darian Lockett will be preaching uh, for us. He's been spending a lot of time studying this letter. And for those of you who don't know, Darian's one of our elders. He's a professor at Biola, so I'm really looking forward to that sermon. Um, then we'll actually be looking at Philemon. Philemon is a letter that was carried to the Colossian church along with Colossians. So it's a companion letter. We'll be looking at that. There's a phenomenal story of reconciliation in that letter. And then we're going to move to Psalm 23. We'll be looking at Psalm 23 slowly over the course of four weeks as we think about this theme of rest, replenishment, and Sabbath for our busy and anxious lives. So that's what's coming. Today, for our last sermon on Colossians, we're going to mainly look at chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, and our focus will be on marriage. Let me say first, to those who are single, who are listening, to those who are not married, just want to be clear about this as we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about marriage. Singles are in no way second class to those who are married in the Christian faith. Jesus was single. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this, was single. To be single is not to be deficient in any way. The Bible says you can live a full and complete human life when God calls you to singleness, whether it's for a season or whether he's given you that calling for your life. There is value in this text for you if you are single, either as you prepare yourself for future marriage or as you listen to God's vision for marriage from this text and think about how you can pray for, support, and encourage married couples in your life. And I think there's, there's much here that applies to any relationship. So this week, after reading and studying and wrestling with this text, I realized at least three things afresh in my own life. One is that I have the most amazing wife. 
She is so strong. It's, she has such a soft heart. She's so supportive and honoring to me, and I don't deserve her. And I realized I have a long way to go as a husband. I can be so me first, so me centric after 18 years of marriage. So I just want to share that I speak out of this text as someone who has a long way to go as a husband. The third thing that I realized afresh, and I really needed to relearn it again this week, is that none of chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, will make any sense apart from the gospel, the central Christian message. And none of it would be, will be possible to live apart from the gospel, the central Christian message about Jesus. As, I, as I'll unpack this, um, we'll see why the Apostle Paul spoke about marriage as a mystery, that God has woven into the marriage relationship this mystery that's only unlocked and that's only discovered as the gospel is pursued in the marital relationship. So to all the married couples in the room, I realize we are all in very different places as we are here this morning. Some marriages I know are struggling with just being stale and somewhat distant. Some, some marriages are doing great. You guys are doing really well. Some I know feel at times you're on the brink of thinking, I don't know if we can do this anymore. God has something to speak to all of us in this text. No matter where we are, the great theme of Colossians is that Jesus has come to bring a great renewal into our lives. And this renewal begins in our homes and in our closest relationships. So this morning, I want to ask you just to open up your heart, to open up your heart to think about how can God bring a renewal of closeness and purpose into my marriage. So let's Let's open up our hearts together and let's look at this text together. I don't have an outline printed for you in the bulletin. It was, I was wrestling with my outline all the way up until the very end, but I have it for you. I'll share it with you as we go. The first point, why is this so hard for us to hear? Is it hard for you to hear these verses, men and women, married couples? I'm going to read them again. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. As I read those verses, I would imagine some of you are thinking, this is one of those examples for me where I, I'm hearing this, and it seems like the Bible is old-fashioned. The Bible just seems way out of date. Isn't Paul just reinforcing the traditional male-dominated order of things in his own culture? Isn't this taking us backward after all that we've worked for, for the equality of genders and roles in our society? These are very important questions. We need to address these questions first to make sure we're hearing this text correctly. These two verses, 18 and 19, and other texts like them have been misheard, and because they've been misheard, they've been abused and misused. So we have to ask hard questions of this text so we have a clear understanding of what is being said and what is not being said here. So why is it so hard for us to hear this? I think reason number one is because what Paul says here in Colossians and elsewhere challenges all our models for marriage, all models of marriage. Just think about it for a moment. Where, 
Where did you get your model for marriage? Where's the, 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 the marriage, uh, how roles should look? What is your vision for marriage? Most of us get that from a combination of our culture and what we've observed, our parents' marriages and other marriages that we've seen. What's a husband's role supposed to be? What's a wife's role supposed to be? Is there any difference? Everyone has a model. This should be hard for us to listen to because what Paul is saying here challenges all our models of marriage, whether it's a traditional model or whether we consider it a very progressive model. How could it be that what Paul says here challenges the traditional model of marriage? In order to get past some of our difficulties, in order to figure out what this text is saying to us, we have to hear this text and how radical and revolutionary it was when it was first heard, when it was first written in a very traditional and male-dominated culture in first century, the Greco-Roman world. Let me give you an idea of this. This is going to be painful to, to listen to, but as we've said, this is a part of something called a house code. House codes were popular at the time. They were written to two people and by all kinds of people for general wisdom. How should I order my house? What should we do in our house? There were all kinds of codes at the time, and I want to share two as an example. One's from Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. Here's what he said. He said, a man has the rule of this household by nature, for the deliberative faculty in a woman is inferior. He said it, not me. In children, he said, it does not yet exist, and in the case of slaves, it was completely absent. Can you get a taste for how radical what Paul was saying here to the culture? That's from the Greek world. What about the Jewish world? Josephus, a leading Jewish figure, said, said this. Scripture says, he said, but it doesn't say this, a woman is inferior to her husband in all things. Let her therefore be obedient to him, not that he should abuse her, but that she may acknowledge her duty to her husband. For God has given the authority to the husband. This was the cultural model of marriage at the time. Very male-dominated completely ignoring the equality of male and female. Into this culture, what does Paul do? Number one, he addresses wives directly. He addresses them first. That was unheard of. In all these other house codes, wives were not even spoken to. It was only the head of the household, the male. For the apostle Paul to say that in the home, wives are to be treated with love, and as he says here, children with understanding, and slaves with justice, as you can just get a little glimpse, that was revolutionary in this culture. No other co code called the husbands to love at all. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives, he was doing something completely innovative, something unheard of, and something very subtle but very huge, when Paul talks to the wives in this text, he uses what's called the middle voice. Okay, when you look at that, look at the text again, verse 18, it says, wives, submit yourselves. Why does it say yourselves? Why doesn't it say just submit? Well, that's a very important piece of the grammar here. It's called the middle voice. It's not just obey. It's not just submit. It's submit yourselves. It's saying that submission is not something forced upon you. It is a choice that you make, a choice only someone with great strength 
can make. He says to wives, this is fitting in the Lord. He says, this is not about fitting into a certain model of culture or a certain model of marriage. There's only one Lord of the home. It's not the husband. In any marriage, it's Jesus. That's just a little bit of a taste of how what Paul was saying completely undermined the traditional male-dominated model of marriage. What about the progressive models of marriage? Progressive models of marriage have understandably reacted against traditional male-dominated models of marriage and emphasize equality, compatibility, and personal fulfillment. Paul is saying there is something needed in marriage beyond equality. He affirmed equality in many different places, beyond personal fulfillment, beyond compatibility, something greater and something more glorious than these things. And it actually comes from embracing these different roles that God has given us to play in marriage. So this is a new model, a brand new model based on Jesus. It's hard for us to hear that. It's hard for us to listen for that. But that is what is being suggested, which leads us to the second reason, which it's hard for us to hear it. Not only does it present to us a completely different model of marriage, it completely redefines our concepts of roles in marriage. Reason number two. It redefines our concepts of roles in marriage. Paul is working from completely different notions of the roles of submission and the roles of leadership and authority based on the gospel. Let me explain. First, Jesus completely redefines submission. No one likes to be told to submit. We all kind of react like, why do, why do we have to submit? Why does the wife have to submit? Why isn't the husband told to submit? Jesus completely redefines our notion of what submission even is. That submission to place oneself under another does not diminish strength or equality or glory, but instead it enhances it. How? Well, if you look through the New Testament, all Christians are called to submit. Ephesians 5, uh, 21 says, submit to one another. It's something we're all to do for each other. Romans 13, 5 says, submit to your government. 1 Peter 5, 5, Hebrews 13, 17, those texts talk about being subject to your elders or church leaders. None of these, none of these calls to submission are based on equality or inferiority of ability or capabilities. How do we know? The reason we know is because Jesus also submits. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son will be subject to the one who subjected everything to him. Jesus submits. That doesn't diminish his equality with God. That doesn't diminish his glory. That doesn't diminish his strength. But it is a part of the glory of his strength. It enhances his glory that he submits. So we know that submission, defined by Jesus, is not inequality. It's not blind obedience. It's not passivity. It's definitely not the acceptance of any kind of abuse. It's not a general gender principle. It's a marriage principle, as elucidated in this text. And it needs to be interpreted in a way where we're not ignoring all the other one another commands of Scripture. All the things we're called to do to each other need to play out in the context 
of a marriage relationship as well. Jesus completely redefines submission. On the other hand, he completely redefines leadership and authority. How? Did you notice nowhere in the New Testament does it say husbands lead your wives? You wonder why? Instead it says husbands love your wives. And that's because Jesus completely subverted the notion of leadership and authority through the model of his love. He who would be first of all, he who would be first of all, the leadership role must be last of all and slave of all. He who, must be, who he would be first of all would be the first to lay down his or her life. That subverts all of our ideas about power and rights and authority. In Jesus' kingdom, to be the top of any order is to take the place of greatest service, to take on the title slave, and to be the one that goes first in initiating and costly love. For about 10 years now, I've been using this tool. I've been using it in premarital counseling and in other marital class settings. It's called Prepare Enrich. So it's a great assessment. It takes a snapshot of your marriage, and, and it, it feeds back information on how we're doing in communication, conflict resolution, forgiveness, etc. So based on the data of over 20,000 couples, Prepare and Rich has some really helpful information on, on common problems, common factors, and um, common areas of happy marriages and struggling marriages. Here's something that they found. The number one most common stumbling block out of all possible issues for married couples who are unhappy, the number one, 93% of unhappy couples say, we have problems sharing leadership equally. I'm going to have a little bit more to say about that, but I want you to consider this. Could it be that much of that problem, much of that issue is related to a, having a wrong idea of what leadership is in the first place? If we are both wanting to share leadership as defined by Jesus, then what would happen is we would have problems with fighting over who gets to serve each other first, who gets to wash each other's feet, who gets to lay aside their rights. Why is this text hard for us to hear? Why is it difficult for us to hear and to apply? Because it's a totally new model for marriage with new roles defined not by any culture, but by Jesus. Now, I've tried to address a few of the reasons why it might be hard for us to hear this text today. There's no way I could cover all your questions, all the difficulties you might have, whether you are a Christian or you are not a Christian here this morning. This might be difficult for you, and if you want to talk further about it, I would love to talk with you. I've been studying it all week. It's fresh in my mind. I'd love to talk with you or you and your spouse and talk more about that. But I want to move on. Why is it hard for us to hear? But secondly, how are we meant to hear it? We can mishear this, we can misuse this, but how is it meant to be heard? These two short verses on marriage in Colossians, they're hard to hear for any culture. And we think, Paul, two verses in Colossians, that's it? We need more. Marriage can be great, but marriage can be very hard. Why isn't there a whole book on marriage in the Bible? Shouldn't there be? 
Wouldn't we want there to be a whole book? To answer that question, we have to zoom out of Colossians, and I promise we'll come right back in. Paul did say more about marriage. He said a lot more about marriage in Ephesians 5, which is uh, Ephesians is a companion letter to Colossians. They were probably meant to be read together, hand in hand. And he says there in Ephesians, he says, marriage gives us kind of the decoder lens. It gives us the mystery, the answer to the mystery that unlocks what the Bible says about marriage. And there what Paul says is, the reason I'm not giving you a whole book and a whole letter about marriage is because the whole Bible is about marriage. The whole Bible is about marriage. There in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, you can look there if you have a Bible. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Some of you may recognize that text. It's from Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning of the Bible. Then he says, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul is saying, here's the mystery. The first marriage, Genesis 2, and by implication, all marriages ever since were created and designed as a picture and a pointer to the ultimate marriage, the relationship between God and us. Last week I said, Maybe the most important lesson of parenting is this. You are not your kid's ultimate parent. God is. Well, if I can, I want to say the same thing about marriage. Maybe the most important lesson of marriage is this. You are not your spouse's most important spouse. God is. Where did Paul get this idea? Is he just kind of pulling this out of nowhere? Oh, yeah, it's a mystery. It's Christ and his church. Where did he get this idea? Well, Jesus called himself the bridegroom a bunch of times in Matthew 9, 25, and in John 3, 29. He said, this is how I want you to understand me. I am a bridegroom who has come to woo and to win my bride. And this theme wasn't new to Jesus. He was drawing on one of the major themes of the Old Testament. One of the major ways God speaks about his relationship to his people. The book of Hosea the prophet Hosea has one of the most powerful examples of this. I want to read to you from Hosea chapter 2 to give you an idea of how God talks about his people, speaks of his people as his bride. In that day, Hosea 2.16, this is the Lord's declaration. You will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. Baal was the name of an idol that the Israelites we're worshiping instead of and in place of God. And he's saying, you're not going to call me by your false lover's name anymore. You're going to call me by my name. Even in your unfaithfulness, you will know me as husband. He says, I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth. They will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them. Listen, with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, the creatures that crawl on the ground... Where is that language from? It's from Genesis. It's from Eden. He says, I will make a promise that you will rest securely. I will take you, verse 19, to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. 
When God says this to his people, I will take you, what does that remind you of? Isn't that a marriage vow? When I said, I, Eric, take you, Amelia, to be my lawfully wedded wife. This is the same language God uses to describe his relationship with us. One of the most fun things you can do to get to know another couple is ask them their engagement story. Maybe you've done this before. Um, For us, for me and Amelia, I had big plans. I was going to propose at the Grand Canyon. And it was January, or it was December at the time, and I was talking to my aunt who lives in Arizona. I was like, here's my plan. you have any thoughts? She said, did you know it snows at the Grand Canyon in December? I said, no. (laughs) So that changed my plans, and I decided instead of the Grand Canyon, it would be Carbon Canyon in Brea. There's more, there's more to this story, but that's a little bit of our engagement story. You know, when a man gets down on one knee, as I did in Carbon Canyon, says to a woman, will you marry me? And hopefully the woman says yes. And if she does, think about, think about this. Why are they not married right at that moment? Will you marry me? Yes. We're married. Why not? Something else needs to be done. There are covenant vows to exchange. It's the words of the promise, the pledge of the covenant of love that actually makes a couple go from not married, from one moment, and married to the next. Okay, back to Colossians 3. Stay with me, 3, 18 and 19. These verses on marriage are not to be heard on their own in isolation. We cannot understand them if we pull these two verses out and try to debate them and understand them and live them. They have to be put back into their context. Verse 12, Colossians 3, the context is, Therefore, as chosen, holy, and beloved. That's the covenantal language. That's covenantal language of marriage. I chose you. You are set apart and special to me among all others. And I love you. How are we with all our sin and unfaithfulness, God's chosen, holy, and beloved bride? How is that? Well, the answer goes back to Genesis 2.24. That Jesus cleaved from his Father in heaven to hold fast to his bride dying for her life to win her love so that he would be forever united to her in eternity. There it is in Genesis 2, 24, Jesus' pursuing love and Jesus' humble submission. When we know and when we experience Jesus' love for us in all our unfaithfulness, despite all our sin, despite all our mess-ups and brokenness, then and only then can we give that kind of love to our spouses, in all their sin, in all their selfishness and brokenness. Jesus is the pursuing lover. He says, I will do whatever it takes to remove any and all obstacles that stand in the way of you knowing my love even if I have to die for you. Jesus is a submissive son. He says, I will lay aside all my strength, All my power, I will empty myself and lay aside all my rights to serve and to save the broken, sinful, undeserving, so they will become what they are meant to be, glorious, new, and beautiful, their true selves. 
think Kathy Keller in the book Meaning of Marriage, she describes this so well, the implications in our marriages. She writes this, in Jesus, we see all the authoritarianism of authority laid to rest and all the humility of submission glorified. Both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority, Jesus in his sacrificial submission. By accepting our gender roles and operating within them, we are able to demonstrate to the world concepts that are so counterintuitive as to be completely unintelligible unless they're lived out by men and women in Christian marriages. That's how this text is meant to be heard. We have an opportunity to demonstrate and to experience something that is unintelligible apart from the beauty and the truth of the gospel. Why it's so hard to hear, how it's meant to be lived, and let's talk a little bit about what it looks like. What does this look like? You might be asking, well, help me out. I need some, I need some application. What am I supposed to do? this afternoon in order to experience this in my marriage. It looks like a couple of things. At first, it looks like harmony. It looks like harmony. What we see from the Genesis backdrop of this text and from Colossians 3, which is looking backward to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is that as God restores and renews us in the image of God, he restores us also in our relationships. So I say it looks like harmony instead of it looks like equality very purposefully. If we use equality as our rubric to evaluate how is my marriage going, how are our roles, we could use equality, but I'm saying this text would call us to use a different concept, the concept of harmony. Harmony is when two different things come together to create one, and that is God's design and intention in marriage. God takes two different things, he joins them together to create one better thing. So I like the word harmony. And it's important that the equality of male and female, husband and wife, which is established at the very beginning in Genesis 1, he created the male and female in his image, he created them. That was not lost when sin entered into the picture. What was lost, if you remember the story in Genesis 3? It was the oneness. It was the harmony. Adam starts blaming Eve. Eve starts blaming Adam. They were broken. What's restored in the gospel is harmony. So harmony is when vocalists, right, sing different parts to one song. Last Sunday, Amelia and I were able to go to this concert. Uh, we, didn't, we hadn't heard of this group before. They're called Straight No Chaser. I don't know if you've heard of them. You look them up on YouTube. You know, they have all kinds of, of cool songs. So we saw Straight No Chaser. We were like in the third row. And in the show, uh, they take a moment, they take a break. And it's really, it's really kind of fun moment because they introduce all the different singers in the different parts. So they say, here are the tenors. Like, they get to sing all the cool stuff. They're like the lead, the lead guys. Here are the baritones, and here are the basses. Now, can you imagine if, if there was a a vocal group, there, there's nine guys in Straight No Chaser, if there were nine people and said, we're all tenors, we're all baritones, we're all basses, that would probably get boring after one song. You say, okay, I've heard that, that's okay. But these guys with nine voices coming together, singing in harmony, the show just got better and better as it went on. If equality is the goal in marriage, we end up keeping score. Don't we? 
to make sure it all balances out. It's equal. You did the dishes today, I'll do it tomorrow. You got to pursue your career for the first five years of marriage, I get the next five years. You took care of the kids last week, so you owe me, so I get owed a week. It's never-ending scorekeeping. That's two different songs. That's not one song with different parts. The word harmony comes from the Greek word to join. When you join two different voices to create one song, nobody could sing on their own. Last week, we were having a conversation in, in our bedroom with, with our kids and one of our older sons. We were talking, it's, it's a little bit random, so, so just stay with me. There's a point to this. We were talking about technology and how there's like a witching hour. Like you, you enter into technology and you lose all concept of reality because you're just bewitched. And so I was turning to him and I, I, I called him a witch. That was just my playful way of, of joking with him. I said, you're bewitched, you're a witch. And then he, was like, he, he was thought I was talking to Amelia. He's like, why are you calling your wife a witch? I said, <laughs> I said no, 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 no. I would never call her a witch. Like, how, do you, how do you think I'm supposed to treat my wife? I just asked him that question. And he said, you're supposed to treat her as more than an equal. And she is supposed to treat you as more than an equal. And I was like, whoa. I'm going to use that in my sermon. <laughs> That's exactly what this text is talking about. This text is saying, here's how you treat your husband and wife as more than an equal. It creates oneness and harmony. How do our differences and distinctions come together to join us together to become one? Well, let me just offer some suggestions. Men in marriage, in general, understanding exceptions and overlap and being careful not to stereotype, operate on this spectrum in a marriage relationship. On one end, there's a tendency to assert power, on the other end, there's a tendency to abdicate and be passive. Paul says, neither nor, it's love. Women in marriage in general, understanding exceptions and overlap and not being bound to culture or stereotypes, operate in a different spectrum in a marriage relationship. On the one end can be dependence, and on the other hand can be control. Paul says to women, Support, use your strength to support and honor your husband. Men in general bring a core question to a marriage, and that core question is, am I adequate? Do I have what it takes? Women in general, again, um, in general, in most cases, bring a core question to a marriage, and that is, am I worthy of being loved? So harmony and oneness results when husbands show in words and action to their wives, you are worth dying for. You are number one on this earth to me. There is no close second. Not the kids, not my career, not my hobbies, nothing. I give you the gift of my sacrificial love. Wives show in their words and in their actions to their husbands, you can do it. I believe in you and I'm for you. I give you the gift of my strong support. Roles, when understood this way, I think scripture teaches can be beautifully complementarian. There's a, there's a lack of details here. There's nothing in the Bible about chores. There's nothing in the Bible about careers and jobs. That's not there. Those things are so culturally determined that the Bible is silent on those things and they're meant to be worked out in the context of your specific marriage relationship, taking the guidance from scripture into account. Lastly, 
It looks like harmony, and it looks like ministry. If we are married, our personal and primary ministry of Colossians 3, 12 through 17 is to our spouse. It means that this one person before all others, I will seek to treat as Jesus has treated me. It means this one person before all others, I will commit to putting on for you what Jesus has put on for me as I have come to him with my real self, broken and sinful and inconsistent and often selfish. The overarching purpose of marriage, then, is not our personal fulfillment, but it is this, to be God's main partner in the main work he's doing in your spouse, making them more like Jesus. As Colossians 3 says, bringing them more and more into alignment with their true and real self in Christ. I just want to close with this. I've been looking a lot at this list. It's in Colossians. If you turn in your bulletin or in your Bibles, it starts in verse 12. And it goes through the text, this list in Colossians that describes ministry in action. I want to read through this list as applied to marriage and then make a few final comments. Paul says, put this on for your wife. Put this on for your husband as Jesus puts this on for you in your brokenness and sin. First, compassion. I seek to understand my spouse's feelings. I listen to enter into their world asking, what's it like to be her or him? That's compassion. Kindness. I have a non-coercive, soft-touch approach to encouraging change in my spouse. I realize communication is far more than just the words that I use. That's kindness. Humility. I bring an awareness of my own sinfulness and weakness into all my interactions with my spouse, especially when we're in conflict, humility, gentleness. I'm approachable and tender in my words and actions. My spouse feels safe bringing anything to me. That's what gentleness is. Patience. I don't expect immediate or easy life transformation in my spouse. Forbearance. I learn to endure and bear with the imperfections of my spouse. Forgiveness. I regularly, regularly release my spouse from having to pay for hurt they've caused me. I don't treat them based on their shortcomings or their track record of wrongs. Okay, we'll close with this. Why get so specific? I really wanted to share that list this week. Why? Not to pile on you all the ways that you're failing or falling short. That's not why I share this. But to bring about specificity of repentance and specificity of change. We can all say and leave here, I need to be a better husband, I need to be a better wife, that's true. But here is a list that helps us and shows us and guides us how, what. In what way does it do that? Well, the place where you most struggle on that list, I don't know if you saw it, I don't know if you can identify it, but the one that you struggle with the most, that's the one you most need to experience from Jesus. That's the best gift you can give your spouse. Where do I struggle with the most to show this to my spouse? I need to see how Jesus brings that to me. For example, do you struggle with gentleness? Are you harsh and angry? Do you know how approachable Jesus is to you in your sin, in your struggle, in your worst and ugly moments? Do you know how tender he is and how safe he is? You need to experience that. 
or you won't be gentle? Do you struggle with patience? Do you know how patient Jesus is with you, knowing all of your sin and all of your issues? How he's with you and faithful no matter what. Do you struggle with forgiveness? Do you know the enormity of the sin with which you've been released and forgiven? Find the one thing you struggle with most. Ask Jesus to show you how much he's put this on for you and how he continues to put it on for you. And that will melt your heart and enable you to serve your spouse in that way. May God work that into our marriages more and more for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do fall short in all our relationships as we look at that list, as we see and hear this vision of what marriage should be. We are humbled. We are humbled. But I pray that you would also fill us with great hope, that you would convict and prick our hearts on where we need to repent. Not for the sake of being a better husband or wife, for our own sake, so we can feel better about ourselves, but so we can better love and serve and see you formed in our husband or in our wives, to see them come alive to the new and true self that they are in Christ and how we can be a part of that most incredible work. So give us repentance and show us what we are not believing, how compassionate and kind and gentle and patient and humble and forgiving and forbearing you are with us. Break our hearts with that. So from there, we might pour out love upon our spouse and in that experience the glory of what you have intended in marriage and to demonstrate and proclaim with our marriages who you are and what you have done. May it be by your grace, Lord Jesus. Amen.